Hello, and welcome to the turbulent world of Middle East soccer, or Middle East soccer podcast. I'm your host, James Dorsey. It's a good time to take a step back and evaluate where we stand as we enter the final weeks before the World Cup in Qatar. The Qatar World Cup has emerged as one of the more controversial tournaments, if not the most controversial, in the history of world soccer body FIFA. At the core of the controversy were questions about the integrity of the Guttery bid. In other words, did the Gulf state bribe its way into becoming a host? Can potential hosts be disqualified because they're small states? Qatar has a mere 300,000 citizens. Or because they have an extreme climate. In Qatar's case, it gets very hot in the summer. Traditionally, the time of the year that the World Cup takes place. And, of course, human rights, including political rights, labor rights, and rights related to sexual and gender diversity. Joining me today to take a stab at evaluating the often fierce debate about the Qatar World Cup that has sparked deep-seated emotions on both sides of the divide, and to look at what the debate has produced in terms of change in Qatar and lessons learned by human rights groups, trade unions, and other activists and NGOs, as well as what happens to these issues once the World Cup is over, is renowned sports journalist and historian James Corbett. I invited James, both a friend and a colleague, because he is, in my mind, one of the most level-headed, best-informed reporters who has covered the Qatar World Cup from the day the Gulf state launched its bid. James, welcome to the show and to what I hope will be a conversation and discussion rather than an interview. Thank you for having me on, James. It's a pleasure and an honor. Let's start off with throwing out a dilemma that I'm grappling with. Qatar has become a kind of lightning rod, much like Iran or perhaps Turkey. It evokes guttural, instinctive responses among European and American fans. To be fair, Qatar got off on a wrong foot from the outset with a suspicion of corruption in its World Cup bid. It never was able to shake the allegations as well as satisfy its critics on multiple other issues, such as labor and LGBT rights. I can come up with lots of reasons why, and hopefully we'll dig into that in a bit. But there is one issue I struggle with. Russia should have been as controversial a host as Qatar. It had annexed Crimea. It was persecuting LGBT had labor issues related to the World Cup and was violating rights in human rights in general. I'd like to think that the difference is more than simply bias and prejudice. Am I missing something? No, I don't think you are missing anything, James. I think the best thing that ever happened to Russia's successful World Cup bid um, happened, happened about 25 minutes later when Sepp Blatter pulled Qatar out the envelope and the world looked the other way. And I think it's a symptom, perhaps, of um, journalism and the media's failings that it can only look at one issue, um, at, you know, at any one time, which is which has been Qatar instead of looking at both Qatar and Russia. But even in the build-up to, you know, the immediate build-up to the Russia World Cup, you know, it was it was during the Gulf blockade. There's all sorts of misinformation coming out of the region anyway. Uh, trade union groups and rights activists retained, you know, despite all that background, they retained their focus on Qatar instead of looking at Russia. And, you know, there were very, very egregious labour abuses. You know, that's just one issue around around the building of Russian World Cup stadiums, which was almost entirely overlooked um, in the media. Um, obviously, you know, Russia's, Russia's a sort of Pandora's box of um, corruption and human rights abuses. Um, it's obviously in the midst of an illegal war in Ukraine and was when it was when it was hosting the World Cup. And all these all these things were overlooked. Um, and I think I think I think it's been a failure of the media in general to have covered that um, and to have taken its eye off Russia. When, when things were going on. But of course, that isn't to minimise the very many and very serious issues around Qatar's host status as well. 
Sure. It's, act, it's actually interesting. I hadn't thought of thought of it uh, from Russia's perspective, but indeed, they must have been delighted that there was a lightning rod that didn't uh, put a focus on them. But and uh, you know, it also raises the issue, and it's actually a, a, an issue that I think goes much broader than just Qatar or the World Cup, which is that as a consequence of that, the Qataris, of course, are not totally unjustified in their sort of sense that they're being singled out and that uh, there are double standards involved. And it strikes me that that whole double standards discussion is all the more important uh, if you look at the much bigger picture, you know, with, with regard to uh, uh, the rivalry between uh, Russia, China, the United States for shaping the 21st century world order, where in many ways, many countries have not fully endorsed the U.S. position on Ukraine because of double standards. So in that sense, the Gutteries really have a foot to stand on. Yeah, I mean, look, there's complete double standards. You know, I've said this from the start. When London was awarded the Olympic Games in 2005, it was, it was, it was in the midst, the UK was in the midst of an illegal war and occupation of Iraq. You know, if, if, if we're going to apply the sort of standards that we've seen, you know, the rest of the world, apply and you know the sort of indignation you know where does it where does it stop are we are we are we going to have uh, a planet where the where the only the only uh, the only event hosts can be switzerland and norway and bhutan maybe you know every 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 country has its shortcomings and failures and every country has its has its advantages too um but the Qataris have also, you know, made made quite a thing of this of this victimization. You know, perhaps perhaps quite rightly in in some instances. Um, and I don't think they ever anticipated the fury of the response that their host status would get. No, I, I think they were to to totally taken by surprise, and basically thought, you know, a little bit like a. Like an ostrich that puts his head in the sand, and when when he pulls his head out, this will all have blown over. And instead, what happened is whatever moral high ground they had had vanished, and they were on the defensive. Yes, absolutely. And you know, the Qataris yeah. were out in South Africa during the year that they that they won host status in 2010, and they saw the level of scrutiny that South Africa got. And every time there's a World Cup, there is a sort of moral crisis around the host nation in South Africa. It was crime. And I remember being part of the media there and there was a section of the media, perhaps the tabloid media, who were literally waiting for the first reporter to go and get mugged so they could write about it and sensationalize it. Right. And, you know, it, it, it happens with every single tournament, you know, Japan and South Korea. You know, the outrage then was that, you know, some Koreans eat dog. In Germany, there was there was sensationalized stories that it was going to be uh, a meeting point for hooligans all over Europe. In Brazil, it was crime as well, and um, also also the issues of infrastructure. So every every World Cup tournament has has these issues arising out of it. But when you have a tournament in a place like Qatar, which is small and alien and hot. Um, and probably not very well understood by the rest of the world, then those issues are going to, you know, they're going to be amplified even further. So they should have been prepared for this. We saw this in South Africa and elsewhere. Maybe one reason why they should have been prepared for this is that in contrast to the Gulf states and the Middle East, the Gutteries did try to engage with their critics and bring them and bring them in rather than just build a wall and have nothing to do with them. Yeah, look, I think there's a couple of things going on there. One is that, yes, at one level, the Qataris engage. They spend a huge amount on public relations. They have lots of, you know, very smart and very well-educated Western advisors. And on another, on another level, the actual leadership of the country, the people who are making the decisions in the palaces and so on, they don't actually care that much. 
and they believe what they want to hear. Um, or oh, sorry, they, I'll say that again. They hear what they want to believe. Um, you know, they, they, they don't listen. And we've seen this again and again, and I'm sure we'll come back to it later in our conversation, where, you know, there's been a readiness for engagement on issues about labour abuses or human rights and so on. And the rug has been pulled from underneath um, those wanting wanting to enact change in Qatar by the by the people who were ultimately ruling the country. Yeah, it seems to me that you know I, I think I agree with that. I, it seems to me that part of the problem was that you had, for example, the World Cup organizers, the Supreme Committee for Delivery and Legacy which really, I think, in many ways was of goodwill and understood the issues and, and in some ways even understood what it needed to do, but had no freedom of movement and decision-making. All The decision-making was all centralized, coming down to even what they would were able to say in a press release. Uh, and therefore, they, they often weren't able to respond uh, appropriately or even in a timely fashion. I mean, I remember yeah. that on issues with, with dealing with the IUTC at one point where Sharon Burrow, the uh, secretary general, had visited the wrong stadium and they wanted, and I asked them about it and they, uh, they wanted to respond but couldn't. And I only got the response I wanted when I said, look, I'm publishing in three hours. You're either part of the story or you're not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's absolutely some of that, and you know, even even back in 2010, 2011, I remember um, a member of the royal family had a press officer personally assigned to it, and being called at like eleven o'clock at night, saying, "No, you can't have that story out because you know it looks looks like he's less important than you know a civilian who was on the Supreme Committee or the Bid Committee." You know, you have all these little things going on behind the scenes, and people who are people who are terrified that they're going to, you know, upset the wrong person, um, and you know that can have very devastating consequences in in somewhere like Qatar. Absolutely, but that doesn't take away from the fact that my sense of this is that the whole debate as it's taking place, and it has taken place about Qatar, is that there are very genuine issues. And those issues are serious enough in and of themselves, whether that's the labor issue, the LGBT issue, or the issue of the press, freedom of the press, to freely report and to look for elements of their story. For example, through unfettered access to the living quarters of migrant workers. But on the other hand, some of that got blurred or distorted by what I would call bias, prejudice, and sour grapes. So questions like what you have mentioned in the beginning, it's a small country, it's 300,000 citizens, it's a desert country, it's too hot in the summer, but who determines what... So questions like what you mentioned in the beginning it's a small country. It's 300,000 citizens. It's a desert country. It's hot in the summer. But who defines what size you have to be to be able to stage an event like this? Or on what grounds are you holding a country hostage to its climate? And then, of course, there were the sour grapes, which in my mind, leaving aside for now the integrity of the bid, Qatar spent a multitude in comparison to what its competitors, the United States, Australia, and others spent. But there were reasons for that. And those reasons were never delved into the, in the debate. It seemed to me that in some ways, yes, the critics were engaging, but they were also complicating their own positions by virtue of the fact that they could not separate these issues. I don't think the critics have engaged. That's 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 been part of the problem. You know, very few reporters, until really the last year, have actually gone out to see it on the ground, and they've all made snap judgments, and they've misrepresented 
um, data, which is not always very good data, um, to make their cases and so on. Look, I think at the heart of it, you know, we talked about the size and the heat and, you know, there's also the lack of football culture or the perceived lack of football culture and so on. I don't think you can ever get over that. You know, you can spend all you want on PR companies and, you know, try, you know sponsorships and influencing uh, the sport in different means and ways, whether that's club ownership or owning a broadcaster or, you know, even sponsoring an NGO, um, as, as, as Qatar has done in, in several ways. But you're not going to get over the core issues, which is that the World Cup is going to be hosted in a few weeks in somewhere that is hot and alien and unfamiliar and very, very foreign to, to an awful lot of people. Um, with regards to your comment about the sour grapes, again, I don't know that that's, that's necessarily part of the agenda. I think it's, cert it's certainly influenced um, some bits of it. You know, we all have our suspicions where, for instance, the so-called FIFA files that the, the Sunday Times published where they came from and where they originated from and why they were published and where they were. And, you know, it's been alleged that, a, you know, an, ex an executive from a failed bid um, sponsored sponsored the acquisition of those, you know, allegations that some of the times vehemently deny. But I don't know that sour grapes has necessarily right. influenced the debate. It, it's, just, it's just what... It's just the way that football is, and, and, and football reporting it is, um, particularly on these on these big issues. You know, you go from one day of outraged headlines to another, and that's 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 essentially what drives um, sales or web traffic these days. I mean, you know, let me touch. You you brought up implicitly three points, um, separate points. One is the issue of legacy, and again. What is legacy? If you look at Qatar's football history, if you wish, they won their first regional tournament in uh, 1992. No, sure, they've never been in a World Cup before, but they've won multiple regional Asian, Middle Eastern, uh, Gulf uh, tournaments. So there is a, you know, what, what constitutes legacy? Uh, that's one question. The other thing is, Yes, you're right. I mean, I agree with you. Uh, the media um, really only recently started uh, putting in the resources to uh, report and investigate on the ground. But in the, if you go back to the early days, you did have Amnesty International. You did have Human Rights Watch, uh, the International Union of uh, uh, Trans Transport Confederation, the IUTC. All of them... For one, first, first of all, getting access to Qatar, whereas at a time that that nobody was getting access to Gulf, nobody of that ilk was getting access to Gulf countries, and the Qataris engaging with them, and you've got drafting of of, of model contracts for World Cup related projects, and so on and so forth. So, you know, when I was talking about critics, I, I was referring to more than just uh, just the media. Um, you know, and, and it's the question then is uh, the question then is, you know, so part of that question is engagement worked to a degree. So, with other words, the willingness on both parties to talk to each other, and maybe only a limited but but some degree of will to uh, entertain changes. I wonder whether we would have gotten these changes one, without the World Cup, and two, without the engagement. No, I don't think we would have got the changes. And I think also um, the sort of work that the human rights groups have done wouldn't have got the same attention. I mean, the human rights, I mean, this this came up when we were on a panel together at the Play the Game conference in June with, with right. Minky Borden of Human Rights Watch. And I asked her, you know, did human rights groups actually take their eye off the ball? Because it was it was not really until the you know the latter part of 2013 that people started talking about human rights issues in Qatar. And you know, certainly as the media covering the covering the bid process, I, I started reporting on it in June 2009. 
we weren't, you know, we, you could see it in front of you. You could see these Indian migrant workers on the old American school buses being taken to their workplaces. And you, you could see the, you could see the way that they were operating on building sites around the cities, but you tended not to think about it, you know, because, because frankly, we weren't educated in it, you know, and we failed as well. So, the, you know, there was a lack of engagement until on these issues and, 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 and until it was too late. But yeah, definitely, you know, there's no, there's no question that had it not been for the World Cup, that Qatar wouldn't have engaged. There's no, there's no popular mandate for labour reform or kafala reform within the country. And if you look at the research, you know, overwhelmingly, you know, we're talking 90% plus of the population didn't think anything needed to change in the, in the, in the, in the condition of its migrant labour labor force. I mean, I, you know, one, I think, you know, you, in fact, I would take the, uh, the issue of not having had the, the, your eye on the ball much further. I mean, if you look at 40 years of Gulf coverage, uh, the situation of migrant workers never played a good, a big role. I mean, I remember going to the Gulf for the first time in 1976 and writing a full length page in, the, in, a, in a newspaper about what I was then terming in Kuwait, an apartheid system. And you had, you know, so you've had this going on since the oil boom uh, after the 1973 oil boycott of America during, this, during the Middle East war. And the media never really picked up on it, even though it was an urgent and burning question even then. Uh, but the other part of all of this is, which, which has struck me, and it struck me also, in fact, during the, uh, the Play the Game conference that you mentioned, was that after years of Qatar and its critics battling it out, there's this incredible gap of distrust. It hasn't in any way brought people together. So I get a lot of questions, and I assume so do you. Is Qatar going to roll back these reforms once the spotlights are out and the tournament is over and nobody looks again? I find for reasons that we can get to in, in, in a moment, in my mind, there's no way that they're going to roll this back. They have every interest in retaining it, if not expanding it. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting point you talk about that sort of 40-year sweep of, um, or nearly 50-year sweep of history. Right. Know, since you've I'm, been I'm giving away my age. <laughs> reporting on it. You know, I, I, I studied Middle, Middle Eastern history and politics at, at, at the London School of Economics in the late 90s, and we hardly did anything on the Gulf. You know, we really didn't, didn't do anything. It was all about conflict and all about... Um, you know, Iran, Palestine, um, a little bit about North Africa, but you know, the Gulf, we never did anything about it. But it, it because it's so wealthy, it has such a such an incredible impact on 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 not just regional affairs, but increasingly global affairs. And the the the, the governments of these countries have really sort of integrated their way into the the global social and political system of world governance in in a way that's almost crept up upon us so you know this malay goes back you know as i say years and years and, and, it, and it's not you know it's not just the media um it's 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 probably academia as well and the way that we the way that we look at the middle east as a whole i mean it's also but this is an aside uh, but nonetheless worth mentioning in this context. It's also that now you do have a focus on Gulf studies, but in a sense, Gulf studies, at, certainly at Anglo-Saxon universities, are corrupt because they're all funded by Gulf yeah. states. So yeah. it's, it's Qatari money, it's uh, Emirati money, it's Omani money, it's Kuwaiti money. And uh, there's a, you know, uh, a colleague, uh, a professor in Britain who... Um, has written very critically about the Emirates. And when his umpteenth book on, was being published, the university came to him and said, but you know, we're being funded by Abu Dhabi, to which he 
I must say with I, with great respect for him, answered, "That's your problem, not my problem." <laughs> but without, but with other words, with other words, I mean, you know. So even now that you do have a focus on on the Gulf, you in some ways have often a distorted focus because um, academics want to maintain their jobs, want to maintain their access, and therefore are willing to uh, to cut corners, if you wish. Yeah. But I want to come back to, for a moment, to this whole issue of, of you know, Gata's interest in all of this. And that also goes to what I've called sour grapes, but certainly goes to why Gata spent so much money on this. You know, I, I, I think, you know, the nation branding is a tool. It's not a goal in and of itself. And most countries, you know, bid because... Uh, for nation branding issues, for uh, opportunity issues, and so on and so forth. To me, for the Gutteries, this was part of a soft power strategy that was defense and security first and foremost. Sure, it was diversification of the economy and all these other things. But the real driver was that the World Cup and the sports strategy were part of a soft power driven defense and security policy. It doesn't matter how many weapons Qatar buys or how sophisticated those weapons are. Gata will never be able to defend itself on a conventional battlefield. So Gata looked at Kuwait and the Iraqi invasion in 1990. The conservative Kuwaitis fled to Saudi Arabia. The less conservative Kuwaitis went to the casino in Cairo. That's what the Qataris want to replicate, to embed themselves in the international community to be relevant to the international community and to have the embassy needed for the world to come to their rescue in a crisis. Sports was one more element in this relevance to the international community and to build empathy and understanding as part of a defense and security strategy. I mean, it, it, one of the things that strikes me about this whole thing is that Gutta has every interest not only to maintain the reforms that it is uh, embarked on, but also to make sure that they're properly implemented and uh, even enhanced once the World Cup is over. Because this World Cup was not just simply about nation branding. It really was about uh, uh, making, contributing one more element to Qatar's relevance to the international community and to trying to build empathy and understanding of the country as part of its defense and um, and security strategy. Uh, with other words, the Gutteries, and I think if you go back to the founding of Al Jazeera and various other things that they are doing, it goes back to looking at the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1990, where you had uh, a situation in which the Gutteries, the Kuwaitis couldn't defend themselves the conservative Kuwaitis went to Saudi Arabia. The less conservative Kuwaitis went to the casino in Cairo, and the rest of the world liberated them. That's the model that I think Qatar sees for itself, because it doesn't matter how many weapons they buy and how sophisticated they are, they will not be able to uh, defend themselves. And the issue then there is that, in a sense, they failed, because it's their problem when it comes to fans and therefore to public opinion is really in Europe and the United States rather than in other parts of the world. And it's Europe and the United States which would have to come militarily to their support. It's not going to be China or Russia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's quite interesting when you visit these countries um, and they do have so much wealth. And, you know, if you're a Gulf citizen, you can effectively live anywhere in the world. So, you know, how do you make your own country relevant? How do you make other people care about you? I suppose the World Cup, in a way, is part of that. Um, I think for a long time, though, it might have looked to have backfired. But I think once the tournament kicks off next month, I think, I think people's... You know, the people who are watching it, which will overwhelmingly be at home and on TV, 
um, wherever they are on the planet, will be overwhelmingly positive. And you know that 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 long term PR strategy will have started to pay some dividends finally. Right. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. Uh, one of the questions I'm asking myself is, what lessons does Gata draw from this whole experience? But what lessons do others draw draw from it? I mean, you've now got the Saudis incongruously having been awarded the 2029 Asian Winter Games, which in my mind makes the idea, you know, those who thought that Gata was an unlikely candidate, well, Winter Games in a neighboring country seems even more impossible. But they're also bidding for the 2027 Asian Cup and together with Egypt, with whom they also constitute two of the world's worst human rights violators, are thinking of bidding for the 2030 World Cup. So, you know, it's almost as if countries like Saudi Arabia think they can buy themselves out of whatever uh, whatever dilemmas their their hosting bids are going to uh, are going to create, rather than having drawn lessons from the Qatari experience and looking for ways to preempt that. Yeah, I mean, this is this is something I was going to ask you later. You know. If Saudi operated a properly joined up football strategy, like Qatar did in the in the noughties, where they had representation at FIFA, they had a spire which was you know making all sorts of friendships and alliances all over all over Africa. Um, you know they 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 had Al Jazeera Sports, which is now B in, which became a massive massive influence on the global rights market, which again exerts influence and so on. You know, can, can Saudi ever replicate that? Or has, has that boat passed? I don't know if the boat has passed. I, my sense is that they simply think that money talks. So you mentioned be in um, the Saudis for much of the period of the um, economic and uh, diplomatic boycott of Qatar, we're trying to get a uh, uh, sports and rights entertainment a company of their own off the ground. And if not on their own, then uh, in collaboration with the Egyptians. And they weren't able to do it. And things got as bad as that during the boycott, the uh, Saudis were pirating BN with something called Be Out, which the uh, Guthries took to the World Trade Organization and also uh, in a $1 billion legal case. Now what's happening is that the uh, Saudis are actually looking at buying a stake in BN, and BN is, is actually entertaining that idea. So it strikes me that, that the Saudis... Uh, haven't quite understood what happened over the last 12 years and, and, and haven't tried to start building, as you mentioned, the building blocks that would enable them to, to turn this into a, a soft power strategy that works in their favor. I mean, the Egyptians don't have, you know, they don't have the wherewithal, they don't have the funding, they're dependent on Gulf funding to even try and do this, and yet they are also bidding they're even looking at the 1930, sorry, at the 2036 Olympic Games. So the question is whether we're going to actually look back at Qatar and think, gee, Qatar had an easy time. It's the Saudis and the Egyptians that are really going to be hit. Is that why Saudi keep failing? Because they haven't understood what Qatar did. Because we see all this grand talk, you know, they're going to set up a broadcast network. You know, they're going to bid for the World Cup, going to buy a Premier League team, which they, you know, they eventually did, but it took two or three years to do. You know, is it, is it, is it this sort of lack of sophistication that, that holds the Saudis back? Because they certainly have the money. Well, money is not the problem, obviously. And so, but in the case of the broadcasting uh, rights company, I think what it shows you is that money isn't enough. It's one element in all of this, but you need much more. 
what I do, what I think you have in, uh, again, I think that the, the bidding for, and this brings us also to a, to a discussion, which, which I find a problematic term, namely sports washing. It brings us to, to the whole discussion of, 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 or a much broader discussion of what Saudi Arabia is doing. So in my mind, Saudi Arabia is determined to become uh, the, the hub and, or the go-to place for anything and everything in the Gulf. And they're trying to position themselves sort of as the hub at a crossroads between Asia, Africa, Europe, the Middle East. Um, and that means, for example, that uh, the Saudis have told international business, you want to do business with us? You move your headquarters from Dubai to Riyadh by 2024. Uh, and otherwise, we won't do business with you. They've tried to undermine the uh, free zones, particularly in the uh, Emirates. They're talking about expanding their port network, much in, in the way that the Emirates has a first starter advantage. And of course, they've got these futuristic projects, you know, like the um, uh, $500 billion Neom City, futuristic city on the Red Sea, where you're going to have a, uh, a vertical, a horizontal uh, skyscraper that's going to stretch on for hundreds of miles. Uh, you know, it's hard to believe how they're going to do all of this stuff. And so there's, there's almost a degree of hubris and, 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 and thinking that money will do it. We can buy, buy our way out of this, which they in many ways did, for example, with uh, dealing with the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist in 2018. Yeah. I mean, that, that's my reading of it. Um, and they may very well be in for a surprise because uh, they're, you know, in terms of the human rights record, uh, theirs is one of the worst. Just look at the recent sentencing of people to 34, 45 years in prison uh, for sending out a tweet. Or, and this relates to the Asian Winter Games, uh, you've had uh, three tribesmen just sentenced to death or 50 years in prison because they were protesting the confiscation of their lands. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely horrific. Yeah, so I think that that in that sense, I'm not sure that the Saudis have learned any lessons. The other question, of course, is whether the human rights groups, the labor unions and the, and the LGBT community has learned any lessons out of this. I mean, one of the things that strikes me, you talked about it before, that countries by and large didn't have a problem with the labor regime as it was, but they had practical concerns about changing the regime. They didn't have a deep-seated, ingrained cultural opposition to it. And that's very different with the LGBT issue. And the Gutteries are not alone on this. It goes for much of the, uh, the Muslim world. And so the question is, you know, uh, on whether or not human rights groups and other groups have drawn lessons out of this. The lesson in my mind being that, uh, yes, pressure is needed and should be maintained, but there also has to be a dialogue and a long-term process because this is not social change at the stroke of a pen. It's social change that touches on things that are deeply ingrained in society. Yeah, I think I think there's a sense that um, jumping up and down and getting excited in the West about these things is not it's not going to affect any change. In fact, it's probably going to be counterproductive ultimately. Um, I don't know whether that is a, whether that's down to the rights groups or the way that it it is it is again co you know covered in the media and. You know, we've we've certainly had cases where footballers have, have been put in situations um, where where they've been asked questions on 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 
you know, lesbian and gay rights, all labour rights, all that matter. And they say, you know, they simply don't know. They don't have the expertise. You know, they're 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 world famous athletes, but they, sure. you know, they don't have have the authority to speak on these matters. And you know, the idea that they can they can somehow pressure a Gulf government into into in, into making changes which have you know societal and you know religious um, connotations as well is you know it's it's simply not going to happen. No, but it's also I mean in a sense you weren't going to get a public outcry over the issue of labor rights in Qatar, but you could get that in uh, uh, over over LGBT issues. And so you've got a government that's, you know, really walking a tightrope between what is a very conservative society and what are the demands it has uh, to meet with regard to uh, the World Cup. I mean, the, you know, Indonesia in this sense is an interesting case where LGBT is not banned. Um, it's socially frowned upon. Uh, but it's it's not illegal, and so what you get really is something along the lines of "Don't talk, don't tell." The Carter, sorry, the principle of uh, Bill Clinton when he was in uh, in in office with regard to gays in the U.S. military, it's, and and that live and let live is really a situation in which everyone sort of can 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 accommodate each other. And the moment you turn it into an issue, you really are putting the LGBT community at risk. Yeah, um, look, I mean, I don't know enough, to be honest, about the situation of, of, of the lesbian and gay population in, in Qatar. I don't think that there's been enough research because it's probably an incredibly difficult issue to cover. What you don't have in Qatar which you do have in places like Iran and Saudi is 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 a religious place. So is is you know, this is a question for you because I, I I don't know the answer. You know, is is there this sort of live and let live attitude in Qatar where you know it's it's ignored or it's 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 done in secret rather than um, you know being openly persecuted? Well, it's certainly done in secret. But it's not a live and let live situation. Um, now, it's not that you've had a lot of, you know, public uh, 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 court cases and, and people going to prison. The pressure's from within the family. And, you know, it's family honor that's at stake. It's deep-seated, ingrained attitudes within the family. And so people who are just different uh, are ostracized. Um, there, you've had one of the things that the World Cup. It was very brief, and nevertheless, I thought it was important. Was that several years ago you had one, maybe two, Qatari gays speak out publicly, and speak about the mental stress that they were under, and what this was doing to them in terms of their mental health. Uh, that discussion was quickly closed down. But on the other hand, what you're going to get, if all goes the way I think the gutteries envisioned that it will go, you're going to get a month in gutter of live and let live. You've, you know, you had Nassel Khata, the uh, the CEO of the um, World Cup organizer, for the first time last week, say, if you're walking same sex hand in hand down a street in gutter, nobody will touch you. That's a, you know, that's a, now to be fair, men holding hands is something that is culturally widespread in Qatar, as well as in other uh, Gulf and Middle Eastern states. But it's always perceived as not being homosexual. It's just simply a an expression of of of, of friendship, of closeness. Yeah, so, I was. I was in a media briefing with um, NASA last December uh, in Doha, um, and there were there were a number of journalists from from across the world, and a Spanish journalist who had never been to Qatar before, asked him about this, 
but he was obviously so intimidated by by by, by what he heard, he couldn't say um, you know LGBT or gay rights or whatever. He, he used the euphemism a different kind of love, and NASA, poor NASA didn't didn't understand what he meant. And one of his aides had to sort of whisper in his ear, and NASA sort of laughed and said, "Well, I've never heard it. I've never heard LGBT rights described that way." Um, and it was this it was this sort of wonderful little cultural cultural clash. Um, right. But you know, I think I think I think that goes back to what we were saying earlier in the conversation about everybody believing every single worst preconception um, about the country, and it's you know it's right. got a lot of failings, but it's not it's not it's not as bad as that. I know. I, I don't know what this the Spanish journalist thought was going to happen. Whether you know religious police were going to jump out of the cupboard or something, <laughs> incarcerated. Right. I mean, we've got just to round up the conversation. Um, we've got four weeks uh, till till the till the first game is first match is played, and there are all kinds of things in my mind that Gata could do to significantly almost by a stroke of a pen, uh, to significantly improve its image uh, in the short term, but also in the long term. For example, one of the issues that's still playing out uh, on, the human, on the human rights groups front and the labor rights groups front is the issue of compensation for workers who suffered injuries or for the families of workers who died on World Cup related uh, projects. And sure, the committee is saying that they've already uh, engaged in a compensation process for those who have paid you know, outrageous recruitment fee fees to get to Qatar in the first place. But it's often seemed to me that if they, for example, not only would embrace the, the notion of compensating workers who suffered injuries or death as a result of their work on the World Cup, but would expand that to construction sites across the country, irrespective of whether they're related to the World Cup or not, they would be doing themselves an enormous favor. Yeah, that's an easy win. You know, you 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 come out and you say, look, there's things that we've got historically wrong. We're establishing this fund. It's going to be independently administrated by experts, international experts in their field. And we'll, it will look to provide restitution. You know, we've been talking about this for well over a decade now, and I think I think I think one of the most common refrains in our conversation, James, is you know they don't do themselves any favors. So they have oh, all these mechanisms. Enemy. Yes, yeah, that's the other one. They have all these mechanisms and they have these protections on paper, but they don't always see them through. Um, you know, I've seen it myself where. Nepali labourers have have passed away, um, you know, within their worker accommodations rather than on building sites and so on. And the family have had to fight to get compensation. That is there written in contracts, which the Qataris will show you, and they'll give all their guidelines out when they're trying to, you know, make their case for, you know, what wonderful employ employers there are. But they don't see they don't see these things through all the time, and people people fall through the system. So if you had an independently administered mechanism that could, that could provide restitution, not just for the people in the World Cup sites, but across the country, it would be a it would be a huge win and it would diffuse an awful lot of the criticism in my mind. I mean the the implementation thing really is 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 a problem. And I think there are two aspects to it. One is the aspect that you mentioned, which re really, as far as I can see, is just simply short-sightedness. I mean, there was a case several years ago, I think it was a Moroccan or an Algerian player who was playing for the um, Gadri Club Al Jaish, who was forced, and he had a, 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 an issue with the payment of his salary, and he was forced for 18 months to stay in the country, his career, uh, and so on. And frankly, the the PR damage that was done by that case, as opposed to what 18 month salary would have cost 
just pay him and get him out. Yeah. It made no sense. But I think that the other part of this is that it is that they have implementation problems, not only with regard to whatever reforms they have enacted, they have it across the board. So you have a foreign policy that is, again, it's, it's a soft power strategy. It's multi, it's, it's fast paced. Uh, it's geared towards uh, mediating conflict. And they, they do successfully bring people to the table and they can obviously smoothen things out because they've got the money to smoothen it out. But that's only the first step towards resolving a conflict. You need follow-up. And they just don't have the wherewithal, the implementation of that. So I think you've got two sets of problems here. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, I suppose if you're going to equivocate on this as well, you're dealing with, particularly with the, mi the migrant workers um, issue, you're dealing with people who are coming from parts of the world where there isn't always the bureaucracy to support families and victims' families. Right. That's, that's the other part of the problem, of course, which takes you into a whole other area, which may take us too far today, which is, you know, there's the problem on the, on the part of the gutteries as a and, and others as a labor receiving country, but there are also huge problems in the countries that are labor supplying countries, whether it's Pakistan, Bangladesh, India, Philippines, and so on. I mean, ultimately, just to round all of this off, ultimately, I think on balance, despite uh, the nature of the debate about, uh, about Gata and the way that uh, it's in some ways become very entrenched, this has been a soft power success or will be a soft power success story for Gata. And in the end, the vindication of, of, of having invested not only financially but otherwise in this in this tournament may prove to be uh for them a milestone yes i believe it will i believe in the long term it will be considered a success story for qatar um albeit that it was a very fraught journey both for the country and the awarding body fifa uh you know let's not forget that the decisions on the 2nd of December 2010 effectively brought the organization down. Absolutely. Well, in, that, in some ways, you can argue that that was a, uh, a, cont a guttery contribution. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Qatar saved football governance. On I've that note. I've not heard that one before, but yes. <laughs> on that note, James, thank you very much for joining me. I enjoyed this conversation and I hope that uh, lessons are learned on everybody's part because there are a lot of lessons to be learned from the Qatar experience. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you and all the best. Thanks, James.